Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Paloma Romero was born in Melilla, Spain, into a family of nine children, and grew up in Malaga. As a teenager, she chafed against both her family and the political repression and conservatism of Francoist Spain. She said, My family wasn't too religious particularly, a bit, but not too much. But they obviously wanted to control me like any other teenager. I didn't want anyone to tell me what to do. I wanted to see a different way of life. Franco was in power. To me, there was no freedom. You couldn't think what you wanted, you couldn't read certain books, you couldn't act in certain ways. And I just wanted to break through that. I didn't think that was right. So at the age of 17, she left for London to learn about life. Just three months later though, she returned to Madrid to go to university, where she participated in anti-fascist activism and often got in trouble with the police. And I thought that was very unjust and I didn't want it and I didn't care what happened to me so we like read communist books you know we just thought we were gonna do the revolution and we got very in involved in like just and there was a lot of really wonderful poetry and the people singers of that time like Juan Manuel Serrat and Paco Ibanez the, a lot of those kind of like uh, Bob Dylan it was this parallel kind of move so the words were like so inspiring and I, like as a teenager I locked myself in the room and just listened to them until I knew them, you know, like kids were doing all over, you know, in America and in England. So that strict regime, it created in me the opposite. Like I'm not gonna have that. 
I'm not putting up with that. That didn't fit what I wanted in life. You know, I, I look for justice. Truth was very important. But mixed with it, it's like, you know, when you're a teenager, you know everything. So I thought I knew everything. And so, but I was definitely not going to have it, and I was going to do something about it. I packed my bags. I didn't know anybody in England, and I landed in London. I had some money to be able to sneak through the customs. I sent the money to a friend so that he could come. I had no money, got a job, and didn't know the language, and somehow it happened. Not long after graduating, she returned to London and began living at a squat at 101 Walterton Road, where she met and began a relationship with John Graham Meller, who went by the name of Woody, and who played and sang in the pub rock band The 101ers. He later changed his name to Joe Strummer while still in the 101ers and, after seeing the Sex Pistols play live and immersing himself in the new punk scene, he left to join a new band that would become The Clash. Punk's explosive energy and sense of radical freedom inspired Romero. Like many others on the scene, she acquired a pseudonym, Palmolive inspired by Clash bassist Paul Simonon's playful mispronunciation of her name, Paloma. One time we went out with uh, Paul Simonon, like he said, what's your name? And I said, Paloma. And he just like joking, and he goes, oh, Palmolive. And we were all looking for new names, new clothes, you know, you, like you would go to like um, thrift shops, you know, and just get, you know, like, we'll just make our own clothes. And, and so we were, so I grabbed it and said, yeah, I'm Palmolive, and that's where that comes from. Palmolive would dance during the 101ers sets and eventually decided that she wanted to become a mime artist and joined a troupe. This troupe's leader told her they already had enough mimes, but she could play drums while the troupe performed instead. She said, I didn't get on with the guy, so I had a fight with him and left. But I had already started playing drums and I thought, ah, that's not hard, I can do this. Palmolive then joined the band Flowers of Romance on drums. Flowers of Romance was a short-lived band that only ever played live a handful of times and never recorded any songs. However, it did introduce a number of musicians to each other who went on to form other more successful bands, such as Keith Levine, who went on to form The Clash and Public Image Limited, Viv Albertine, more on her later, and Sid Vicious, who would go on to drum with Susie and the Banshees after missing out on the opportunity of singing for The Damned, before eventually becoming Punk's poster boy, when he replaced Glenn Matlock on bass in The Sex Pistols. Vicious was the leader of Flowers of Romance and almost instantly made a pass at Palmolive. After she refused to sleep with him, he kicked her out of the band. And we were practicing in my house and we finished practice, everybody left and he didn't. And he's hanging out and I'm like, just broken up. Like we were just break, me and Joe were just breaking up. I'm like, why is this guy still here? And then I have my mini skirt and you know, like, and he's like, trying to act all macho, and he goes, I hate blacks. Looks at me, I, I hate blacks, and I go, I hate people that hate blacks. I was not in a good mood. And I also felt like being a punk, you just, 
you, you speak your mind. But he was seditious. He thought he could do whatever he wanted. <laughs> so I didn't think so. So it didn't when the friends came. And so anyway, he just left. And then the next time he said, you're out of the band. I hear, I'm, no, actually, I heard that from someone. You're out of the band. I go, what do you mean I am out of the band? And he, I said, why? And he goes, you're just not right. Basically, I did not sleep with him. And so, thank God, really, when, when you think of what could have happened. I think I would say he he had this front, like, tough, and mm -hmm. that, but he was really like a young kid. Like, in a way, I would say even shy, but this bravado, like, you know, like, like a peacock, you know, like mm -hmm. a little bit with his leather and his stance, you know, like, just showy, I would say. But, you know, like more. But I, I have to say, you know, to be fair, too, like I would, so that was our interaction. So after that, like, we did not hang out together, you can imagine, like, I did not like him and whatever, you know. Palm Olive was determined to start a band made up of only women because she didn't want to be playing music and writing songs and have that be dependent on whether or not she slept with a guy. Nor did she want to follow the pack blindly pretending to embrace people and ideas. She wanted to live by her own punk code. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Band Biographies is proud to present the story of The Slits. Ariane Danielle Forster was born in Munich, West Germany, on the 17th of January 1962. Her father, Frank, was a German pop singer who had had some chart success in the 1950s and 60s, while her mother, Nora, was a friend of Jimi Hendrix and had previously dated renowned session guitarist Chris Spedding. Ari's maternal grandfather was the wealthy German newspaper proprietor Franz Karl Meyer, owner of the Tagspiegel. Her godfathers were Austrian composer and pop singer Udo Jürgens, who won Eurovision singing for Austria in 1966 and sold over 100 million records in his 64-year career, and John Anderson, the singer of the prog rock group Yes. In the early 70s, Nora and Frank divorced, and Nora moved her and Ariane back to London, her home city. In 1976, at the age of 14, Nora took Ariane to go and see Patti Smith play. There is some debate as to which gig this was, with Zoe Street Howe's 2009 book Typical Girls, The Story of the Slits, stating that it was at the Hammersmith Odeon in October, and Forster herself saying it was at the Roundhouse on the 16th of May. Either way, she was having a monumental argument with Nora, and her histrionics caught the eye of Palmolive, who thought the energy she was putting into this paddy would make her a great front person for her new band. And there was on the side, there was Ari with her mom, Nora, and Ari was young, and she was like throwing a temper tantrum on the floor and shouting and saying, you mom, whatever, like you blip with it. You know, like she's just like cursing her mom, like left and right. And the mom's like, <laughs> just smiling. <laughs> and being Nora, you know, she was beautiful, blonde, and she had these pink fluffy uh, sweaters. And then this was this crazy girl. And, and I was mesmerized by her. And I was thinking already, I want to form a band. 
And I thought I didn't want to be in the front. I like I rather like to have my space. And I can't sing anyway. I didn't think not that you could I couldn't play the drums neither, but that somehow it was a difference. I felt like I could relate to the drums. So anyway, I, I was looking for someone that would be uninhibited to be in the front. And I thought she said, I thought that was for sure she would be great. And so I asked her. Forster immediately agreed. And the next day, the three were joined by bassist Susie Webb at a practice room to form the first version of the Slits. <laughs> Guitarist Kate Corris became Kate Chorus, spelt with a K, and came up with the Slits as the name for the band which I'm sure doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand the meaning behind. Bassist Susie Webb became Susie Gutsy and Forster took the pseudonym Ari Up. Never heard girls until then absolutely bursting with a really raw primal energy that we had. We're trying to cause a bit of mayhem, to be honest with you. Yeah, we threw a few chairs around. It was a call to arms for the girls. They weren't background dressing anymore. They were Amazonian punk rock warriors. Oh, I don't give a shit if you club or not. It's your attitude that counts. This lineup was incredibly short-lived, and by the end of the year, after just a few gigs, Gutsy was replaced on bass by Tessa Pollitt. Pollitt remembers in an interview with Janine Bullman of loudandquiet.com, I met the Slits through this News of the World article that was written about women in punk right at the beginning. Ari came round to my flat and she really liked all this poetry I'd written on the wall. Susie Gutsy got kicked out and I joined. That was it really. I was playing guitar before and so I had to learn bass in two weeks for our first gig at the Roxy in Harlesden. In the audience at the Roxy that night was Palmolive's ex-Flowers of Romance bandmate Viv Albertine. She said, I thought they were amazing. We met up a few days later and played together, and I backcombed their hair like the New York Dolls. And that was it. We just clicked. Chorus was next to be given the elbow, and Albertine stepped in on guitar, completing the classic lineup of the Slits. And the band began writing songs and recording some very basic demos. I didn't like it being an all-girl group, and everyone at the time was very against being labelled, you know, because we'd been labelled all our lives. We were just these sort of useless, poor, comprehensive school-educated kids. And uh, I said to Chrissy Hind, who was a friend of mine, oh, Chrissy, I don't want to be in an all-girl group, it's tokenistic. And Chrissy just had said to me, oh, shut up, Viv, and get on with it, they're a good band. <laughs> it's very down to earth. It was fun. We were all on the same sort of level. I can't believe how we found each other, because even to this day, I've never met any other women like the other three slits. Ari and I especially could write together really well, which me and Sid couldn't. He was really crippling to work with, you know, because, I don't know, he wanted to write songs about S&M and concentration camps and things, and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. With the girls, I could write a song like Typical Girls, and they all understood exactly what I was on about and the pressures of what's expected of you to be a young woman. Their style was loose, to say the least and was inspired more by reggae than punk. The Slits were very inspired by reggae. We were, that's why we were different. But, um, but in generally, the attitude about reggae related to it because it's the rebelliousness, the utter rebelliousness. Ariana became so engrossed in it that, you know, she had longer dreadlocks than me and spoke um, Jamaican heavier than me, and it became quite disconcerting because she was from Germany. 
In 76, I heard reggae and I was interested to the music, not because of Jamaicans, because I didn't really know Jamaicans, I haven't seen any, but I heard the music first and it hit, it hit a hardcore thing in me, right? What we were writing about was everyday life and what the reggae musicians were writing about was everyday contemporary life, what's happening now, the violence, the poverty, the injustices. It's very normal for me to feel that music was a, um, a conduit for protest and that's what punk was and that's what reggae was as well and I think that's where the two really came together was it's about talking about life on the streets when you were an underdog where you had no money you had no voice and you wanted to point out the wrongs in the world and your only way through that was through music. I think what reggae really taught punk musicians was about space and, and letting, you know, being brave enough to let there be holes and gaps and, and, and dub even more than that, because punk was very strict, very fast, you know, get through it as fast as possible, very, very urban, whereas reggae was also came from a, an urban background, but it was about letting go, being loose, and it was such a relief after the strictness and the minimalism of punk. The punk came from the fact that none of them really knew how to play their instruments very well, as well as their appearance, wearing bondage clothes or carrier bags, slash t-shirts and back-combed hair. I mean, the interesting thing that bands like The Pistols and The Clash were seen as uh, so experimental and so different, but actually they were rock and roll bands. Um, they acted and dressed like rock stars really and had the whole pose on stage whereas I think the slits were utterly different you know we challenged all that we made sure we even stood differently we didn't fall into all the sort of um, I don't know the cliches of rock and roll it didn't matter in the early days that we couldn't play it, 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 again it just mattered that you had the passion I mean we could play well enough to just all start at the same time we didn't play well enough to all finish at the same time but you know we all looked great we hammered away and we shouted what we what we wanted to say and but no the energy was absolutely wild it's just made it up as we went along and each time we learned a new chord we put it in a song and write a new song about it around the, around the chord Albertine said in the loud and quiet interview that she was making it up as she went along she said we, in a way, tried to fit in with the boys and how they played. I hadn't been taught an instrument, so I was literally making it up as I went along, and with things Keith Levine was showing me, though he wasn't showing me straightforward things. He was teaching me more the mentality than the actual chords. He gave me the confidence to do what I wanted, and I would make things up and he would say, what time is that in? It works, but it shouldn't. At the time, Albertine was going out with The Clash's other guitarist, Mick Jones. She added, Mick didn't teach me anything, only guys you don't sleep with teach you something. She later said in an interview with NPR in 2018, We weren't attempting to copy boys' music. We were very deliberately not playing 12-bar blues structures and normal chord progressions, which rock musicians had turned into such cliché. We tried to literally go inside our bodies and listen to the rhythms within ourselves and take the normal words we used every day and our normal thoughts, which girls hadn't written about before. We're just four people. Mm. We're not two men and two women. When we work together, it's personalities that count, mm. count individual characters. When you sit down and write a song, you don't think, oh, I'm a woman, I'll write something about women. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't affect women. I mean, being women doesn't affect music at all. It's, no, it's irrelevant. We just, we're just a band, just because we happen to be girls. So, you know, it doesn't make that much difference, we don't think anyway. In May 1977, The Clash took the slits on their White Riot tour, along with Buzzcocks, The Prefects and Subway Sect. 
The Slits' lack of musical ability extended so far that Mick Jones would tune their guitars for them before each show, as well as doing the same for his own bassist Paul Simonon. It was during a show on this tour at a club called Vortex in August that they first came to the attention of John Peel, who decided he had to invite them to record at the BBC for posterity on one of his famous Peel sessions. Albertine said of this first Peel session recording, It was absolutely raw, more raw than any boys band. I almost can't believe we had that much energy. However, the session wasn't remembered as fondly by the engineers who were tasked with trying to rein in the tour de force that was the early slits. For a start, they had to keep tuning the band's instruments for them. Bill Aitken, one of the engineers there that day, said the session is a classic if you're into shit. It probably put the cause of women in rock back a century or so. He remembers that Peel and his producer John Walters, who both secretly attended the recording, were pissing themselves laughing at the difficulties that we were having in getting anything coherent out of the circus act thrashing around in the studio. However, Peel would go on to praise this session, and their second, recorded in March 1978, as among his favourites, saying, The two sessions the Slits did during the punk era were just magical, I thought, were just terrific. If I was to make a, a list of the ten best sessions of, of all time, the two Slits sessions would be in a top ten. They were just mesmerising. Their inability to play, coupled with their determination to play, you know, was uh, the kind of conflict between these things was magnificent. Albertine said about that first tour with The Clash, we were the massive rebels of the tour. The way we looked was much more unusual or far out than the guys, because by now people were used to rock and roll looking guys, but girls in fetish wear, with their t-shirts slashed hair standing a mile on end in Dr. Martin boots. They couldn't stand it, and they would say we will only have them in the hotel if they walk from the door to the lift, and we don't want to see them again until the next day. Every day the tour manager would threaten to throw us off the tour, it was bloody stressful. The boys could get away smashing up the hotel rooms and being the, being the punk rock boys, but if the girls even went on tour and just walked into the hotel But you did look talking, quite scary as well as... I think our, what we said was scary too, but we were not aggressive as far as violent or smashing up hotels. It's very romanticised now, our times, you know? Yeah. And of course it was great, because when you are in a revolution, it is like a big explosion and... And you're, you're, it's exciting. But on the other flip of the coin is, it's constantly how we're going to get through this gig without being banned, how we're going to get through the gig without the audience jumping on stage and attacking us. You've got to have, find that balance. Did the slits get hassled? They were physically attacked on the streets, literally. You've got to understand that they deeply freaked people out on a psychological level. On the White Riot tour, we had to bribe the coach driver, Norman, to allow them on the bus. Not because they did anything to him, but he, he just couldn't compute. You know, women weren't supposed to be like this. There were guys just cruising the streets, old-fashioned macho guys who were the norm then, just thinking that maybe how you looked, you were a prostitute. I got spat at and attacked many times. Ari got stabbed. It was just part of everyday life. Palmolive adds, We had fights because things would go wrong. We'd just fight like we were sisters. One time I didn't know how to fix the drums and the drums were moving. I would try to grab the drums and bring them back, and Ari was just screaming. You couldn't hear anything. So we started a fight on the stage. She started telling me I was offbeat, and I started throwing the sticks at her. People thought it was part of the show, but it was for real. We didn't care, and that was part of the attraction. 
And also, we were girls. And there weren't any other bands that were just girls. The Slits' raucous on-stage behaviour was in stark contrast to the democratic way they wrote their songs. One of them would bring lyrics, then the band wrote the music collaboratively, exchanging ideas and devising arrangements together. Palmolive wrote the lyrics to several songs, including Number One Enemy, Shoplifting, Newtown, FM and Adventures Close to Home. Up wrote the song Slime, and Albertine wrote Typical Girls. Palmolive said, For the royalties and the business side of things, there was an understanding between us that if everyone worked on the music, it belonged to everyone. The Slits didn't sign to a label straight away. Albertine, for one, didn't think they were ready. She said, Mainly we didn't sign because we knew we didn't sound like we did in our heads. That and the record companies wanted to market us and package us up as sexy punk girls. There really weren't any other girl bands at the time. We had to wait until someone took us for who we were. Eventually, Island Records offered the Slits a contract that, in a bold or foolish move, gave the band full creative control of everything from the artwork to the choice of single. At this point, Palmolive was getting fed up with certain management and creative decisions the rest of the band had been making and was beginning to lose interest. For example, Malcolm McLaren had begun sniffing around to manage the band after hearing shoplifting on John Peel's Radio 1 show, so he schmoozed them for a while, which won over the other three, but not Palmolive. She said, I had talked to the guy, and I could see that I just didn't agree. He said, I want to work with you because you're girls and you play music. I hate music and I hate girls. I thrive on hate. I want to work with you. I said, no thank you. They couldn't see. They just saw that Malcolm had a big name. He was the initiator of the whole scene. He was like a guru to the punks. But I'm not like that, thank God, because I would have been swept along. That's one thing that I give to ourselves, the girls, like the sleds and the raincoats. We didn't want someone telling us what to do. We wanted to auto-define ourselves, even if we didn't know what we wanted. Whatever it was going to be, we were going to decide. Someone was not going to, because that to us was part of punk. And so that didn't make sense. So, But the boys had more like that ambition thing, and they were actually more pliable with Bernie, the Clash, and with Malcolm, the Sex Pistols. I think Johnny was the one that Johnny Rotten gave Malcolm more, you know, made him work for his money, maybe more. Malcolm really ripped them off. So they got what they wanted, you know, they got to the big venues and they got, and we were like two years, like we had eight songs and we were playing and that, but we would rather wait. In the end, they were managed by reggae DJ and filmmaker Don Letts after getting to know him at his regular reggae nights at the Roxy Club. However, the crack between Palmolive and the rest of the band widened and widened until it was unrepairable and she was fired. She said, It just became very crazy, the problems we had. We couldn't sort them out. To begin with, we got on. We were friends. And then we couldn't. So my reaction was to withdraw. I wasn't writing the same kind of songs they were. And they came out saying that I couldn't play the drums. Which wasn't true. But at the time, I believed them. That was their reason. That they really liked me, but I couldn't play the drums. None of us could really play our instruments. I don't think that was the issue. By that time, I could play much better. Something had to happen. In some ways, I was kind of relieved. And on the other hand, you don't like to be fired. You know, there was squabbles and like petty little things happening, like in every family, in every group. 
me and Vivian were not getting along, you know, like, because it wasn't just with the other ones. I just felt we disagree and that, okay, well, go along now with you. Then you have to compromise and come along. You know, that's normal life. But I felt like that, you know, it wasn't sitting right with Vivian. And then the hammer came down <laughs> through the channels and it was like, oh, you're not keeping the beat. So they put a... a I mean, you listen to the pill sessions, the mm -hmm. fine. And I wasn't perfect with the pill. Like, I mean, yeah, I would go up and down. And that was mm -hmm. part of mm -hmm. the thing. So I just remember going into Ireland. And this, I had to do this test with the metronome or something like that. I remember feeling like really like uncomfortable. And, and you know, the tensions were like, you know, you don't, you can't really enjoy music when it's so tense. So then, you know, the breakup came after that. So Tessa told me that they had decided to, Vivian basically say, you know, either Paul Moyf or me. And that was it. I felt terrible. I felt like so, like if someone just hits you, you know, like the slits were my life. I should have had the strength to just rip myself out before it got to that. Or the intelligence of saying, okay, what are we doing? We're not agreeing. Now I will go. Like I said, okay, let's, Let's figure this thing out. How are we going to proceed? But we didn't have that. I didn't have it. They didn't have it. I don't blame them. You know, they wanted to go a different way, and I respect that. I felt like my whole life got taken away, like very vulnerable, sad, rejected. She was replaced by Peter Clark, who is better known as Budgie, who had previously played in the Liverpool punk band The Spitfire Boys that had previously supported The Slits and had split up at the end of 1977. It was a girl, it was a girl's unit, you know. Anyway, I don't know, I was, maybe I was the token girl. Budgie was a fantastic drummer and actually brought the whole thing together. He was so solid, whereas before, you know, we'd all been a bit more improvisational, but he was absolutely rock solid and all the songs suddenly gelled and that's when we felt we wanted to record. They were totally untutored in, in a sense and, and, and didn't give a, you know, a, a toss about what anybody, especially the kind of very male-dominated music, dominated music industry at the time. And, and it really meant you could play what you wanted as long as you kind of like felt it, you know, as it came from... From here somewhere. With the change of drummer came a change of musical style. This wasn't just down to the addition of Budgie, but also because of Dennis Bovell, the producer of the band's debut album, Cut, which was recorded at Ridge Farm Studios in Wessex. Bovell's family had moved to London from Barbados, and in his teens he had set up a sound system playing dub music as well as forming the reggae band Matumbi. He would go on to produce albums for the Thompson Twins, Bananarama, The Pop Group, Fela Kuti, Orange Juice and Madness, but is probably best known for pioneering the lover's rock genre, where he mixed reggae music with disco elements. The biggest song of his in this style was Janet Kaye's Silly Games, which was a number two hit in the UK. The song featured prominently in an episode of Steve McQueen's Small Axe series of films, which first aired in 2020. The episode, entitled Lovers Rock, is set at a house party, featuring a sound system during which Silly Games is played in its entirety, and Bovell himself makes a cameo. 
On Cut, the Slits' originally raw, raucous guitar and drum-dominated live sound, as captured in the two Peel sessions of 1977 and 78, was cleaned up and polished into a more bass-oriented sound, which drew heavily from reggae, dub and world music. Up's voice still warbles, as if uncertain of the key, but for a band that had been playing its instruments for a little more than two years, Cut is a remarkably confident record. In an interview with The Guardian in 2013, Bovell said, We were at the studio for 10 weeks, and it was solid work. The band had clear ideas about what they wanted. Ari, Tessa and Viv had written the songs. They just needed me to shape them. We worked from 9 in the morning until late. Then I'd tell them, off you go to bed, so I could fix things. And Ari would say, no, I'm not going to bed. She would always insist on being there if I was doing anything to the music. They weren't good at reggae, but they were keen to learn. In Newtown, I'm on keyboards and percussion. It's about drug taking, but the drugs were football and TV. I got hold of an ashtray, a spoon and a box of matches, and that was my percussion. Shaking the matches, tapping the ashtray with the spoon, and occasionally striking a match. The ashtray was symbolic of smoking, the spoon of heroin. We were using a desk that belonged to John Anderson of Yes. We weren't supposed to be, but he was on tour. Ari carved on the desk, Ari was here. Albertine recalled in the same interview that Up and Bovel were very strict in the studio. I'd only been playing for 18 months and was with these control freaks. I often went to bed in tears wondering what humiliation waited for me the next day, what weaknesses would be revealed in my playing. When I was playing Newtown, they kept saying, you're not getting it. By the end, I was so furious, I just thrashed at the guitar and made strange noises. Over the intercom came, that was fantastic. Dennis corralled us into shape and tidied up all the ends, but without trampling on creativity. It was so rare for a man in the 1970s to put himself inside the heads and hearts of four crazy young women. Budgie also helped pull it all together. Ari was very communicative about how things should sound, and Budgie could take that from a girl who was 17. He had a feminine sensibility. They were extraordinary men to come across. Before the album, its lead single, Typical Girls, was released with a cover version of Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine as the B-side. Island Records founder Chris Blackwell thought the cover would be more commercially successful, but the band overruled him. Typical Girls reached number 60 in the UK chart, their only song that ever charted. Perhaps the cover song would have sold better, but the band's contract with Island Records gave the Slits complete artistic control, and this, along with a number of other decisions the band would make throughout its career, would steer them away from becoming a financially successful act. We wanted to just be commercial but be ourselves, and somehow the two things didn't go together. I don't know if you have to compromise too much to be commercial, maybe. You just have to rub too many edges off. We wanted to keep our edges. They wouldn't play you if you had a name like that. And in fact, we were beginning to think we might change the name five or six years into the band, but actually we split up instead, so... <laughs> Albertine told Loud and Quiet, I think every decision we made made it difficult for us. We kept thinking, why aren't we commercial? Why aren't we on TV? On the other hand, we were so uncompromising on how we spoke to people, how we did interviews, how we looked, Everything was utterly uncompromised. So we led ourselves down this difficult cult route, which actually, 20 years later, worked out pretty well, as it kept the slits pure. 
and now, because we were so uncompromising, the band has such a strong identity. But it did mean we made no money, and we had no commercial success. The album Cut was released on the 7th of September and reached number 30 in the UK. Antilles Records released it in the US, but it failed to chart there. Pop magazine Smash Hits gave the album a 9 out of 10 rating, and sounds journalist Giovanni De Domo titled his 5 stars out of 5 review, One Day All Girls Will Be Made This Way, saying Cut is astoundingly good. In his B Plus review of the album in the Record Guide to the Albums of the 1970s, Robert Criscow said, For once, a white reggae style that rivals its models for weirdness and formal imagination. The choppy lyrics and playful, quavering chant-like vocals are a tribute to reggae's inspired amateurism rather than a facsimile, and the spacey rhythms and recording techniques are exploited to solve the great problem of female rock bands, which is how to make yourself heard over all that noise. Ari Up's answer is to sing around it, which is lucky, because she'd be screeching for sure on top of the usual wall of chords. Some of this is thinner and more halting than it's meant to be, but I sure hope they keep it up. The cover art, photographed by Penny Smith, proved quite controversial and was one of the final reasons that Palmolive gave for wanting to leave the band. I mean, I wasn't even modest. I would go out and you could see everything. But to me, put it on the, on the front was like selling out, was like being a pinup. And I didn't want to do that. I felt that that's degrading. I know other people think different, whatever, like, they can think whatever, but I didn't want to do it. The three remaining female members appeared naked except for loincloths and covered in mud. They stared defiantly into the camera, looking like Amazonian warriors. Albertine said, The album cover was shot in the rose garden at the studio. We wanted a warrior stance to be a tribe. We were egging each other on, and the next thing you know we were sitting in the mud smearing it all over each other. We knew, since we had no clothes on, that we had to look confrontational and hard. We didn't want to be inviting the male gaze. That just evolved that day. We had a female photographer, Penny Smith. We just got a bit over-relaxed towards the end of the day and started <laughs> slopping mud on us and all that kind of thing. But we were very sure that we had to choose um, a photo where the look was right. We looked confrontational. There was no come-hither look or nothing submissive about us. For every image that went out about us, every word that went out about us, we fought and fought and fought for it to be right because we were redefining how women, girls, were seen in the media. Bovell remembers the aftermath of the photo shoot as slightly uncomfortable. I got a bit of a shock when they did the cover. I went off to have a quick dip in the pool while they were shooting it. When they finished, the owner's son said to them, why don't you jump in the pool to get the mud off? I said no, but they jumped in anyway. There's a photo of me in there with them. I've tried to get hold of the negative. Pollitt added, I think we knew it was going to cause a storm, but it was an incredibly liberating feeling splashing around in the mud. I can't even remember where the idea came from, but it was the perfect setting for it. It just had this ambiguity about it. Us against a country house with roses growing up the walls. It got very mixed reactions. I think we just like to push the boundaries. I spoke to Vivian Goldman, who was working for Sounds or Melody Maker at the time, and she took it to her editor. 
They were saying, they're so fat and ugly, we aren't putting that on our paper. They just didn't want to see women like that. In a time now where we're bombarded with overtly sexualized images of pop stars, the normalization of cosmetic surgery and body modification to achieve the idea of the perfect body, and songs like Cardi B's WAP going to number one in 10 countries around the world, having three women appear on an album sleeve like this doesn't seem particularly transgressive, and as for fat and ugly, far from it. However, at the time, the photos caused outrage with one man going so far as to try and sue Island Records because he crashed his car after seeing the naked slits staring down at him from a huge billboard. After being sacked from the slits, Palmolive joined Gina Birch and Anna De Silva in the Raincoats in its first all-female lineup. after previous drummers Nick Turner and Richard Dudansky left to form the Barracudas and Public Image Limited respectively. The Raincoats had been formed two years previously by Birch and De Silva after they saw the slits play live. I just felt like, I wish that was me. This is what I want to be. What they sang and how they behaved just spoke to me. Birch stated in an interview with She Shreds magazine in 2017, it was as if suddenly I was given permission. It never occurred to me that I could be in a band. Girls didn't do that. But when I saw the slits doing it, I thought, this is me, this is mine. Palmolive recruited violinist Vicky Aspinall into the group by posting an ad on a message board in Compendium Books, a radical bookshop and centre for alternative thinkers on Camden High Street. This four-woman lineup made their live debut at Acklam Hall in London on the 4th of January 1979. Palmolive's drumming is described by Raincoat's biographer Jen Pelly as more like painting, abstract expressionist, not at all like a metronome. It fitted well with the band's non-linear, non-hierarchical approach to making music. Palmolive played on the Raincoat's initial EP and its first eponymous album, which Pelly considers a feminist response to rock and roll hegemony. The Raincoats went on a UK tour with rough trade label mates Kleenex in 1979. Later, Kleenex was renamed Lilliput after the tissue paper brand threatened legal action against the Swiss band. Johnny Rotten was an early admirer of the Raincoats and later stated in an Observer interview in 2009, the Raincoats offered a completely different way of doing things, as did X-Ray Specs, and all the books about punk have failed to realise that these women were involved for no other reason than that they were good and original. The band's distinctly uncommercial sound did not appeal to everyone, however. In Lucy O'Brien's 2002 book She Bop 2, The Definitive History of Women in Rock, Pop and Soul, British broadcaster Danny Baker remarked after witnessing an early performance by the Raincoats that they're so bad that every time a waiter drops a tray we'd all get up and dance. The Raincoats album was released on the 21st of November 1979 and received considerable acclaim from the press. However, Palmolive had left the band in September, replaced by teenager Ingrid Weiss. Palmolive remembered, 
At first I thought, I like Gina and I like Anna, this is going to work. And then, I just knew it was the whole thing. There was something wrong in it. I didn't know what it was. I knew what it wasn't. I knew what I didn't want. We were together about six months. I liked the ideas more, their approach of how to create. In theory, it was more humanistic. They were nicer than the slits. Before the tour, I had wanted to quit, but we had made arrangements already, so I didn't want to let them down. So I said, I'll do the tour and then I'm done. But I think I was just done with the music thing. I was just had it, like they had to be. And I started questioning more spiritual things. Like life wasn't just like about playing, having a drink and just partying and that. There had to be more. I was, it was getting old. So then I decided to leave the music thing. After the tour with the raincoats, she gave her drum kit to Richard Dudansky and went on a pilgrimage to India to visit a spiritualist with her friend Dave McClardy, whom she later married. The couple moved to Spain, then back to England, before relocating to the United States, where they've lived in Cape Cod, Massachusetts since 1989. Here she joined a controversial Pentecostal church named Victory Chapel, joining its extreme right wing. The church itself has been labelled by many ex-members as a cult that imparts high levels of control, extreme commitment requirements and mistreatment of its members. Paloma McLardy is no longer a member of Victory Chapel or involved with organised religion, but she does have devout faith in Jesus, which crops up in most interviews with her since the 1990s. She now considers herself to be a punk mystic and has taught Spanish to children in schools in Cape Cod. She also plays drums in a band with her husband. Guess what? Like now, we're in the history books of music. So in my school, I teach little kids Spanish, and they're studying about punk rock. I had one student, like, he came around my school, right? And so then, you know, what's he doing? He had a big camera. And then they're leaving. I say, adios, you know, buenas buenas tardes. And this little, little kid looks at me and he goes, bye-bye, (laughs) Pomolev. So the word is out, you know, so this Spanish teacher is Pomolev from this list. It's kind of fun. The Slits' sound and attitude became increasingly experimental and avant-garde during the early 1980s, and they formed an alliance with Bristol post-punk band The Pop Group, with whom they shared drummer Bruce Smith, and released a joint single, In the Beginning There Was Rhythm by The Slits, and Where There's a Will There's a Way by The Pop Group on the 7th of March 1980. This peaked at number two on the UK indie chart. The Slits then released an untitled compilation album of mostly homemade lo-fi demos and live performances from before the release of Cut. Two tracks, Face Place and Or What Is It, are incomplete versions of songs that would appear in finished form on the band's second studio album, Return of the Giant Slits, in 1981. A 30-second section of Bongos on the Lawn appears at the opening of the video for Instant Hit from the Cut album. The performance, entitled No More Rock and Roll For You, is a live encore from a gig at the Camden Ballroom in Dunstable on the 30th of May 1977, and is a co-performance with Subway Sect and The Prefects. 
This track is also included on Vic Goddard and the Subway Sects compilation 20 Odd Years, as We Oppose All Rock and Roll slash Sister Ray, as it features extensive lyric quotations from the Velvet Underground song Sister Ray. In spite of its amateurish appearance, the album is an authorised release that was compiled by The Slits and was released by Y Records around the 17th of March 1980. It was distributed by Rough Trade. Later on in June, the band released its next single, Man Next Door, which included a dub version on the B-side which failed to chart. The band toured relentlessly throughout 1980 and 81 before releasing their second studio album, Return of the Giant Slits, in October 1981. The album was produced by Dennis Bovell again and was released on the CBS record label. In comparison with the widely acclaimed cut, Return of the Giant Slits showcases a rhythmic, more experimental sound, inspired by Afropop. It's a denser, darker album that's full of surprises. The Slits were leaping beyond what was commonly accepted as punk rock, and as a result, were no longer seen as a punk band, and the album's world music leanings meant it didn't resonate strongly outside of punk circles either. As a result, neither it or its two singles Animal Space and Earthbeat charted. The extra musicians on the album include the virtuoso multi-instrumentalist Steve Beresford and backing vocalist Naina Cherry. Cherry would go on to have an incredibly successful career both as a solo artist and in collaboration with numerous musical acts. In 1981, she had already been friends with the Slits for two years, having met them in 1979 at the age of 15, while her father, Don Cherry, was touring with them. After which, Naina Cherry moved into a squat with Ari Up in Battersea and formed her own punk band called The Cherries. In a modern review in Pitchfork in 2008, Dave Raposa says, Return of the Giant Slits is a slippery, glorious mess that will infuriate anyone expecting the Slits to revisit their debut. However, it's not a case of less energy, but repurposed energy. Bruce Smith provides a deceptively primal backbeat that meshes perfectly with the odd angles the group explores. Viv Albertine's guitar playing, already fragmented and skittish, is even more skeletal here, her scratches and stabs flitting about the record's periphery, aside from some wah-wah work on Walkabout. On the other hand, Return's rhythmic bent allows Tessa Pollitt's looping and nimble bass lines to take centre stage, and amidst the flourishes of melodica and trumpet is Ari Up's unmistakable croon, attacking the songs the way one would expect a five-year-old to approach them, shamelessly singing notes for the sake of the notes instead of for the sake of some stodgy old melody. While the lyrics moving from personal to global concerns might not pack as much punch as they once did, it's the way she's saying what she says that matters most. Return of the Giant Slits isn't as easy to love as its predecessor, but it could turn out to be the more rewarding album of the two. Just months after the release of Return of the Giant Slits, the band broke up in early 1982. I think anyone who's been confronted in aggressive situations for, say, six, seven years non-stop and having to fight and argue all the time your point of view, you know, whether it's with rasters or A&R men, old boyfriends or new boyfriends or, you know, friends who thought you changed too much, uh, people in the street spitting at you. I mean, seven years of that, yeah, I was exhausted. 
Hollett believes they did the right thing. She said to Loud and Quiet, It felt like we needed a break. We needed to go off and experience our own adventures. We had grown up together and we had worked so hard. Everything was about the slits. We needed to have our own individual experiences in life. I don't think it was a bad thing. And the whole music scene became so squeaky clean in the 80s. And I think that was what put me off. Something really switched in the 80s. Still, the split wasn't easy and it left a huge hole in each of their lives. Pollitt spiralled into heroin addiction and later moved to Africa, getting married to a man named Sean Oliver from the band Rip Rig and Panic, and the pair had a daughter. But Sean died of sickle cell anemia shortly after this in 1990. Albertine likened the aftermath of the Slits breakup as being akin to post-traumatic stress disorder. She said, It meant so much to me, but by the time we split up I was burnt out. I couldn't bear to listen to music for about two years, it was terrible. I went down the filmmaking path, I thought that was a better option at the time. In the 80s music got very careerist, it was no longer about expressing yourself. Yeah, I was devastated. It was like splitting up from four marriages at the same time. It was my whole identity, my whole reason for living had gone. And I couldn't bear to listen to music again for about another three years because it reminded me of, you know, the massive loss. Because I couldn't, I didn't feel I could go back into music and make a new band like now people nowadays do because suddenly we switched into the 80s and it was Thatcherism and capitalism and the music industry became an industry. Instead of a place to make change and change the world and be rebellious, music now was about corporations and um, earning good money and going to your meeting with a briefcase instead of a guitar. Her career as a director lasted throughout the 1980s and 90s, where she worked mainly on TV for the BBC, including five episodes of The Tomorrow People and one episode of Mysteries with Carol Vorderman, about when a lone hacker locked NASA out of its own computer network. She also directed two short films, Coping with Cupid and Rachel's Dream, which were both produced by the British Film Institute. In 2014, Albertine released her first memoir, Clothes, 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 Music, 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 Boys, 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 which became a Sunday Times, Mojo, Rough Trade and NME Book of the Year, as well as being shortlisted for the National Book Awards. In 2019, the New York Times listed it in its 50 Best Memoirs of the Past 50 Years article. I've sort of written this book as a self-help manual, in a way, for young girls. I've very much written it with young girls in mind, because I think, you know, they may look at someone like me and think, oh, she's so cool, she's got a couple of records out, she changed this, she did that, she's in a film, written a book. And I wanted to show them how many times you have to fail and how slow the process is to pick yourself up. You speak, you speak in the book about saying the only music you ever listened to was about revolution, was about changing the world, mm -hmm. and that's what you still expect and hope for from music. Do you think there's music being made out there that is revolutionary anymore? It's not a medium I would choose now. Like I said, I always put myself in the place that I think is most exciting. Now, I'll probably be studying for a science degree and um, be some sort of human rights lawyer. I, I don't think... I think music has actually become a bit of just bread and circus entertainment now. Her second memoir was published in 2018, called To Throw Away Unopened. It describes the extraordinarily complex relationship between Albertine and her mother. The title is taken from a note pinned to a bag left behind by her mother after her death. Albertine says she viewed this as provocation and felt that her mother expected her to look inside. 
The contents turned out to be intensely personal diaries of the last two years of her unhappy marriage, which Albertine read in full, and ultimately incorporated into the book. Her mother had instilled a definite lack of respect for men, and especially the patriarchy, into Albertine as a young girl, both because of the social norm in the 1950s, which was that women were denied jobs if they were married, so that young men coming back into society after the Second World War were able to get back to work, and because Viv's father was abusive to both her and her mother. The couple divorced before Albertine joined the Slits, which meant each of the three members of the band had parents who were divorced and all lived with their mothers, which Albertine credits for the band's anti-authoritarian stance, as well as the way they dressed and how they treated the music industry in general as something to be fought against and mocked. I think we shook up the English establishment. Uh, um, it was a very, very patriarchal society. You never questioned a doctor, a dentist, a judge, your father, your uncle. You never questioned a male, um, especially as a young woman. Albertine got married in 1993 and then went through years of ill health, which led to 13 operations, culminating with her gallbladder being removed and 11 IVF treatments for infertility before finally giving birth to a daughter in 99, whereupon she was diagnosed with cancer. She said, People say after cancer you come back fighting, and you come back grabbing every moment as if you got no tomorrow, and it gives you this courage. It didn't do that to me, maybe because I'd lived those years already feeling that. I suddenly felt all my courage taken away from me. It probably took a good 10 years to gradually build it back up, and I wasn't the same person. I built a different person, a more circumspect, a more compassionate person, but certainly not the daredevil I was before. The way she rebuilt herself was to pick up the guitar again, which her husband didn't like, fearing she would suddenly turn back into a 20-year-old punk girl who would have groupies throwing themselves at her every time she played. He gave her an ultimatum, it's me or the music. And finding that she suddenly had no idea who this man was anymore, she made the hard decision and divorced him. She said, I was very sorry to do that because I wanted my daughter to have a steady family, the one I didn't have. It was not an easy decision. Later in the NPR interview from 2018, she added, I don't intend to enter into any more relationships. I've absolutely had it. And I'm pleased and feel privileged to be in that situation because I'm solvent, I have a very interesting life, I have a daughter, I have my imagination, I have friends. In no way I'm going to louse that up with some idiot man, frankly. They drag you down. I'm talking about my generation of men. I'm sure out there there are some good ones. And I say in the book, either I can't pick a good one or there aren't any around. Either way, I'm out. And I really think it's a complete and utter con. I feel sorry for girls getting caught up in it and still thinking they have to define themselves and their success by being in a relationship. Straight women, straight girls. By being in a heterosexual relationship or being in any relationship as if that's in any way a mark of what kind of successful human being you are. I know I sound a bit born again about it, but it is absolutely not in any way an asset for a woman or a girl to pursue that route. Amen. Albertine released a solo album in 2012 called The Vermilion Border, but retired from music on what she says is the last time in 2014, saying to The Guardian's Sean O'Hagan, I'm just not interested in playing anymore. I came to that decision the night my mum died. I don't worship musicians. I don't worship rock and roll. I don't miss it. I see music as a vehicle, like writing or filmmaking, but I don't think it's a very relevant medium for me at the moment. 
Harry Up got married and had twins shortly after the band split and moved her young family to the jungle regions of Indonesia and Belize where they lived among the indigenous people. They later moved to Kingston, Jamaica. She continued to make music, first with the New Age Steppers, a dub collective formed by dub producer Adrian Sherwood, where she featured on tracks on the act's debut self-titled album, alongside the rest of the Slits, Mark Stewart of the pop group, Keith Levine of The Clash and Public Image Limited, Vicky Aspinall of The Raincoats, and a host of other post-punk band members, as well as reggae artists like Style Scott and Errol Holt of Roots Radix, and singers Junior Biles, Eric Bingy Bungy Lamont, and Bim Sherman. Up then went on to have a solo career under the stage names Baby Ari, Madusa, and Ari Up, and her tracks appeared on various compilation albums. In 2004, she released her first seven-inch solo single, True Warrior, I'm Allergic. Her third son was born in 1994, although tragically the boy's father had been shot dead by the time the birth occurred. In 2000, John Lydon and Up's mother Nora, who had been married since 1979, became legal guardians to Up's twin boys. As Lydon explained in an interview in The Guardian in 2016, Ari let them run free. They couldn't read, write or form proper sentences. One day, Ari said she couldn't cope with them anymore. I suggested they come to us because I wasn't having them abandoned. They gave us hell, but I loved having kids around. 2005 was a busy year for Up. She released her first full-length solo album, Dread More Than Dead, which spawned the singles True Warrior and Baby Mother. On this album, Up turned herself into a genuine dancehall diva. Her unique warbling singing style and virtuosic command of Jamaican patois is sung over rock-hard rhythms and familiar countercultural sloganeering. Not that her politics were cookie-cutter. She declared her romantic independence on tracks like Me Done and Allergic, but she also had harsh words for women who don't stay home to raise their children on Baby Mother and extols the virtues of men who fight against society while being gentle and kind with her and her babies. Also in 2005, Up and Pollitt reformed the Slits, although Albertine refused to join them. The pair spent the rest of that year recruiting a new band to play with, and in the meantime, a live album, Live at the Gibbous Club, a recording from a gig in January 1978, was released. They also recorded an EP, Revenge of the Killer Slits, where they played with ex-Sex Pistol Paul Cook and Marco Peroni, formerly of Susie and the Banshees, Adam and the Ants, and Adam Ant's solo group. Pollitt said, Ari and I hadn't seen each other in years, She'd been all over the place in the jungle, in Jamaica and America. I went to see some of her solo gigs and I just got itchy to get on stage again and play some of our old songs. It was like there had been no time gap and we got on like we'd just seen each other yesterday. We've led very parallel lives and have been through similar experiences. She had lost her son's father, he was shot in Jamaica, and I had lost my daughter's father, Sean Oliver, when she was five. We've both been widowed. Eventually, a core group of musicians was put in place. Paul Cook's daughter Holly sang backing vocals, guitarists No and Adele Wilson, keyboardist Anna Ozawa and drummer Anna Schultz joined Up and Pollitt and the now seven-piece band began touring. 
They toured the United States for the first time in 25 years during 2006's States of Mind tour. In 2007, they toured Japan and Australia, as well as returning to the US, where they opened up for Sonic Youth at McCarran Park Pool in New York. In 2008, the band again toured America and the UK. However, Adele Wilson left the band and No was replaced by American guitarist Michelle Hill, reducing the band to a five-piece. In January 2009, Albertine rejoined to play two shows with the band, the first time the three main members had been on stage together in 28 years. However, she couldn't be convinced back into the band full-time. She said, that sealed it for me, I didn't want to go back. I felt awkward singing songs like shoplifting. I'm a woman now and still have stuff I want to talk about, but I can't be playing songs from 25 years ago. Though she was very complimentary about Up. You watch Ari on stage even now, and she still comes over as something absolutely amazing and different. She has no fear and no body consciousness. She still does something for sexuality and women that I don't think any other woman does. Also in early 2009, the Slits signed to Los Angeles-based Narnak Records and a biography, Typical Girls, The Story of the Slits by Zoe Street Howe, was published in July. Though this is not looked on positively by the band as they believe it to contain a lot of mistakes and incorrect information. At the same time, the Slits were working in Swing House Studios in Hollywood, California, recording the band's third album, Trapped Animal, which was produced by Adrian Sherwood of the New Age Steppers. Trapped Animal was released on the 6th of October to mixed reviews from critics. The BBC's critic Everett True wrote a positive review, saying, Is Trapped Animal worthy of the Slips moniker? You need to ask? This is the Slits we're talking about. They don't know how to stand still. They don't do ordinary. These ladies do not pretend to be anyone they're not. These songs are about issues that concern them right now. No pretense to be sweet young things. Not that they ever were. These are songs dealing with everyday trials and tribulations. These are songs for 2009, not 1979. And that's perhaps the highest compliment of all. On the turbulent reggae gypsy, the music is reminiscent of New Age Stepper's loose groove. Often the music has an almost unsettling sexual charge with a naughty slant. Provocative brass opens the energetic Ask Ma and helps bolster the bouncy satirical cry of rage peer pressure. Sometimes the music veers into territory from their debut album, especially the brash Reject and croaky meandering Can't Relate. And sometimes, wonderfully, the music recalls the return of the Giant Slits album, especially on the deep, mellow groove of Babylon and Be It. But is this album worthy of the Slits moniker 25 years on? Yes, really. The Guardian's Dave Simpson was slightly less impressed in his 3 out of 5 star review, saying, Up's German-Jamaican patois still sounds youthful, and bassist Tess Pollitt's dub rhythm still vibrate with reggae power. But with the duo augmented by newer, young female musicians, a more playful approach hits and misses. Only the purest riot girl would sing ghastly primitive punk reject from the rooftops but Babylon and Partner From Hell offer convincing heavy dub. The surprise success is Crybaby, so sweet and airy it could be Lily Allen. Mojo, Uncut and Q all gave the same 3 out of 5 or 60% scores in their reviews, but Pitchfork gave the album 47 out of 100, with a review stating, 
Trapped Animal is nothing more than an odds and sods record being passed off as business as usual by a band that doesn't seem to know what business is anymore. However, the NME's Emily McKay eviscerated the album in her 2 out of 5 star review, saying, It'd be churlish to expect precocious punk rock priestesses the slits, teenage underminers of Sex Pistols' cocky masculinity, to stay caged in the past. The primitive, untutored musical naivety that made songs like Typical Girls so idiosyncratic and interesting couldn't last. What wouldn't be churlish, though, is to expect them to keep pushing themselves. 1981's Return of the Giant Slits was genuinely ambitious and inventive, a reach into a dubby, dancey future. Three decades on, and the best Ari Up and Tessa Pollitt plus a motley crew of new recruits can manage is an album of deeply average reggae radio pop that sounds like Cindy Lauper's troubled sleep mumblings. Lyrically, it's excruciating. From the tired misapprehension that whining about men being rubbish equals feminism on Ask Ma, to Ari's assertion that, look at an ancient jungle tree, you see me, tribal warrior princess on reggae gypsy. We're all four people celebrating the music they love, free from boundaries of race and that, but there's something inescapably grating about hearing a German-English newspaper heiress wittering on about fucking Babylon in thick patois, crushingly disappointing. Despite these reviews, the Slits continued to tour the album into the following year, even though Up had been diagnosed with breast cancer in 2008. I think for me, I don't expect happiness in life. It's not about achieving happiness. It's about achieving a mission. I was born with a vision of a mission, a specific mission to fulfill in life. And if I'm able to move a step closer to that mission, which is at this point unaccomplished, and it's going forward instead of backward, which so far it is, even though I'm kind of running out of time, I'm you know, sort of catching the last train. I think that's the point, is to accomplish a mission and then not be forgotten, make your mark on Earth. After a two-year battle during which she refused chemotherapy, Ariup died in Los Angeles at the age of 48. John Lydon was interviewed about Up's death by The Week in 2012. He said, who refuses chemo because they don't want their raster locks cut off? Ariane was just not sensible. She thought she could cure herself with witch doctors. We spent hundreds of thousands trying to save her, but it was too late. Lydon and Nora then took in her youngest son, Wilton, alongside Up's twins. Lydon added, I love the boys and vice versa. My role now is to bring them up as best we can. A tribute punky reggae birthday party was held at the Music Hall of Williamsburg in Brooklyn on the 16th of January 2011, a day before what would have been Up's 49th birthday. Naina Cherry, Tessa Pollitt, Holly Cook and other former members of the Slits performed, along with members of the True Warriors, New Age Steppers and other friends and associates. And the Slits' final work, the video for the song Lazy Slam from Trapped Animal, was released posthumously according to Up's wishes. The Slits are one of the most significant female punk bands of the late 70s. Not only did they bravely or foolishly leap into the fray with little, if any, musical ability, 
that through sheer emotion and desire created some great music, setting the stage for a future generation of Riot Girls. Well, I, I would like to say since we played, I have seen a change in the form that there are far more female musicians than there were when we started. Definitely. So even that small achievement to me is a big achievement. And you've just got to try harder. I'm sorry to stand out. You've you've got to be you've got to do what you've got to do, whatever that is. But you, you've just got to try, keep trying. I don't think, speaking as a woman, we need to ask permission to be noticed. You are who you are. If you're a woman, be a woman. Don't ask permission from other people to be who you are. Just do what you need to do. Live your life. And sometimes you have recognition, sometimes you don't. It doesn't really matter. Just do what you need to do. And I, I mean, I think in some way we got to play, you know, with the clash and that because we were girls. You know, so I can say yes, that it's, it's like a horrible thing, you know, whether you are discriminated because of the color or your gender or whatever, you know, you people discriminate others because you are not in my group, so I can be more powerful than you, but really don't ask permission. Just take it and do what you need to do, you know, like just really like, don't wait for them to give it to you. Their success seems on par with the Velvet Underground in the 60s. Neither band sold huge amounts of records upon release, but their influence has been huge and ongoing. Though Pollitt seemed blissfully unaware of how influential the band has been. She said, I wasn't aware at all until I hooked up with Ari again. She kept going on about how we'd influenced the whole Riot Girl movement. I didn't get it until we started playing in America, and we had an audience out there, a young audience. I was quite shocked. I think we exist solely because of the Riot Girl movement now. I think we should have to pay tribute to the Riot Girls because if it, if it wasn't for them, we were totally written out of music, I think, history, when it comes to the old punk times and all of that. So when other groups reform, they really reform because they stick to retro, they are vintage now. But we are not vintage, we are in now, modern now because we were 30 years ahead of time. But long before Riot Girl, a young Madonna had been in the audience at the Slits shows, and you can see the influence they had on her early style. But again, Pollitt has a very grounded view on this. I think she must have been quite influenced by the way Viv dressed as she came to see us before her career took off, but I don't like to go on about things like that. I just think, so what? Everyone's going to get influenced by what they see. I just don't like to blow my own trumpet, I just want to keep moving forward and try not to get egotistical about anything. I prefer to be to be left as a cult group. That's just me. I don't want the recognition, so that makes sense. <laughs> Although much derided in their short existence, what the Slits achieved and what they meant to succeeding generations of young female rockers cannot be underestimated. Ariap adds, The Slits have become something beyond the Slits, bigger than life bigger than our personalities. They have become very mythical. The responsibility to stay true to ourselves is huge. People need something like the slits, even if it isn't us. Every time we play, there's always a girl who says I'm going to start a group. 
There is always someone who tells us that we've been an inspiration or life-changing. May there always be many, many atypical girls. For listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for Band Biographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.